0: Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead.
1: But we never ask these people to do less harm. We talk about giving back, but we never talk about how much these people take and the structures of taking. We talk about changing the world, but we don't talk about all the ways in which they are shoring up a status quo that benefits them and predictably, reliably shuts other people out.
2: Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Anand Giridharadas is about to piss a lot of people off. His new book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World is an attack on wealthy do-gooders who are willing to change everything but the system that made them rich and has left so many others poor. It's a traitor-to-your-class kind of book written by someone who's walked in these halls of power, uh, was a winner in these halls of power, and couldn't shake the feeling that that something was very, very wrong. We we get into some stuff in this book that I think is pretty tricky uh, about the way that we shunt young people into management consulting and Wall Street and tell them that that it is a way to make the world better, about the ways in which a, a certain set of ways of looking at the world and ways of looking at problems have come to dominate everything, but also about the very real problems with other structures like government that has left people fleeing to alternative ways of, of having an impact on the world. This is tough stuff to balance, and, and we try to do it in this conversation. As always, you can email me at show at Vox.com. but here I'm proud to present is my conversation with Anand Giridharadas. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be on the
1: podcast. So are, are people pissed at you or are all your friends mad? I think a lot of people are nervous about this book, those who haven't seen it, because this book is an attempt to say certain things that you're not supposed to say about those who claim they're doing good. And so I haven't gotten a lot of angry emails, but I've gotten a lot of nervous emails. Hurt. I think you're going to get a bunch of hurt
2: emails. All right, let's go to the background of the book. You were a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, which sounds very fancy. It is, so
1: what was that? Henry Crown was a philanthropist who was part of this General Dynamics fortune, which I think was made by making you know, military stuff and the F some F14 or 16 or something with an F. And one of the forms that that philanthropy took was creating a fellowship at the Aspen Institute that sought to do what there are actually many fellowships around the world now that seek to do. Davos has one. The Clinton Foundation has one. The Obama Foundation has one, which is uh, fellowships that take young leaders, often business types or entrepreneur types, and kind of educate them to give back, think bigger about the world and step up. And there's an ideology behind the fellowship, which is – subtly stated, which is the world's most intractable problems can no longer be solved by government. And therefore, we need to have entrepreneurial leaders step up, paint on a bigger canvas, move from success to significance, and give back. So what they do is they get 20 or so people a year to come to Aspen and some other locations and read Plato and Aristotle. And it should have been a telling sign that we also read Jack Welch. Wait, really? Yeah. So, I'm sorry.
2: Uh, I want to hold here for a minute. The syllabus was Plato, Aristotle. I'm I think sure there's there some
1: Gandhi, there's some MLK. We and Jack Welch. Letter from a Birmingham jail. That's amazing. And then a little bit of Jack, Jack Welch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I, I should have understood sooner what I was a part of. So you read these things. And by the way, particularly, you know I'm a writer, so I, I read these Gandhi things. Gandhi and
2: Jack Welch. I'm, I'm going to stop asking about this now, but that's...
1: Oh, yeah, we can... We, you we you can. didn't include that in the book? I think it is in the book. Oh, really? I just missed it? All right. It's in the acknowledgements, I think. Okay, it might be um, my acknowledgements. If it's not in the book, I apologize to the public. So we were brought in to read those things, and we sit in a room like four or five hours a day with this 20 other people, and you talk about the readings. And by the way, these are business people mostly, I was an exception. They bring in two or three people every year who are kind of the spice in the in the dish. So and, most, most and, people are And working. just very
2: quickly, because your background is a New York Times reporter and, and columnist. You, you did a lot of Morning Joe. I don't know if you're still doing the, yep. the Morning Joe cycle. I do. So you were coming from that world of, at this point, columnizing and
1: punditry and reporting. Correct. and And, and writing books. And they were mostly business people, but they like a few people in every class who are artists or – journalists or writers who bring a slightly different perspective. And so we had these discussions and we also kind of become – you kind of become advisors to each other about life and marriages and divorces and work stuff and do I start the company? Do I stay in this job? You know, And you really bond with these people. They were lovely people and I officiated one of their weddings. We all became – So close. it's like a
2: social network that sticks together. Correct. You know, like like you all met at summer camp and
1: promised to stay in touch. Four times – one week each over two years. That's the fellowship experience. Okay. Okay? And they pay for you to go there. They pay for you to, you know, live in these lovely accommodations. And Aspen is nice. Aspen is nice. I, I was at the Ideas Festival once a number of years back. It's beautiful. Aspen is the kind of place that makes you want to be a billionaire sure. instead of resent that, them. That is a good way of putting that. Um, you know, even you go to Aspen, you think, yeah, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and... So I was in this fellowship and I had this great experience talking to these people, bonding with people. Frankly, I don't have a lot of business people in my life. I don't have a lot of people who run like an aviation repair company in my life. And it was an eye-opening experience. I don't have a lot of, you know, country club business republicans in my life. I met them and that was interesting. How do they think? What what's their worldview? And the friendships and all that. So you of that joined was great.
2: the Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute to get some diversity.
1: Got some diversity in my (laughs) life. In your social network. And what I started to realize as I got into that Aspen world, not so much to these meetings of the 20, but then there's other things. There's the Aspen Ideas Festival, which I also got invited to. And there's the summer reunion of all the Henry Crown Fellows past and present, which is a few hundred people and people from other similar cloned fellowships in other countries. There's an East Africa fellowship. There's an India fellowship. There's a Central America fellowship. And... The deeper I got into this world, um, a couple things happened. One, I got to see like a lot of nice stuff. I got some of my friends in this new world had private jets and I got to fly on their private jets, which by the way, are as fun as they sound. I once saw Tom Friedman swimming in his mother-in-law's swimming pool. Well, that does sound fun. In in Aspen, (laughs) while Congresswoman Jane Harmon stood above the pool in heels having a conversation with him. I met a lot of fascinating people and generals and this and that. But as I got deeper into this world, I started to see all these signs about uh, the fact that when we were being brought together to, quote-unquote, change the world and make a difference, actually something more complicated may have been going on. The signs were, a lot of these conversations about making the world a better place occurred in the Koch seminar building, funded by one of the Koch brothers. You know, the Aspen Ideas Festival was funded by Monsanto, which of course just had to pay that enormous judgment because of poisoning people. Also sponsored by Pepsi, which perhaps poisons people more slowly and in, in more legal ways. Um, and it started to seem, you know, Goldman Sachs sponsored our annual summer retreat where we all get together and talked about making the world a better place. And I started to realize that when people like us, the rich and powerful, and then the people like me who they kind of let hang out with them, came into this space to talk about making the world better we were in many ways part of an engine of justification for fundamentally keeping the world that kept people like this on top the same and over time that awareness grew and my discomfort with it grew and i was not the only one there were many of us kind of sitting in the back row proverbially you know saying why is Goldman Sachs on stage having a panel discussion about how it helps disempowered women and why are 400 people who claim to be fellows trying to change the world sitting here listening to Goldman Sachs explaining how it makes the world a better place and what are we really doing when we come to Aspen and talk about making the world better but don't talk about taxes and whether people like us in the room need to pay more of them or don't talk about regulation and minimum wage and whether the companies represented by the people in the fellowship actually need to pay people more so that they can have a shot at a decent life. Why do we talk about little charter schools that we like, but not about actually having public schools funded equally, which would hurt Greenwich and Marin and all the places where people in the fellowship live? What were we not talking about when we came together to change the world?
2: So you were asked to give this speech, which was a speech at one of the reunions of the the fellowship class, yeah? Correct. And this is the genesis of the book. So so I'd like to hear a little bit about the decision process behind the speech
1: you gave. Let's start there. I was asked to give a speech based on a TED Talk that I gave earlier that year in 2015, in March of 2015. And that TED Talk was actually about a previous – my second book called The True American, which is about a hate crime in Texas and the victim who forgives the guy who shot him the white supremacist who shot him. And I gave a TED Talk that, that started with that story but then moved on to talk about the two Americas and the fact that we're, you know, ignoring a kind of an undercountry that is buckling right beneath us. And so they asked me to give a talk, sort of a version of that talk again at this summer event that they were having. And I said yes. And as I thought about it, I realized, you know, I don't want to give that same talk Again. Um, there's not really a value in the age of video and giving the same talk again, um, and I realized I wanted to do something different, actually specific to the fellowship, and I wasn't sure exactly what. But I emailed the people who had invited me, and you know, and said, "I think I'm going to do something a little bit different." They said, "That's fine." Um, I may have stretched the little bit part, and I started to write, you know, a speech. I should say this is a side note because it's kind of an interesting side note. I won a journalism award earlier that year for that True American book and it came with a little bit of money and I was deciding whether to spend like a couple weeks writing the speech which in some ways makes no sense to, you know, I wasn't getting paid to give the speech. It was just like a speech at this reunion and it may have seemed like a, sim- a silly use of time to spend two weeks writing some speech and because I'd won that journalism award, I kind of thought like, yeah, that's what that, that kind of thing is for. It's 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 for... Um, taking time on something that, you know, may not lead anywhere but is, like, a good thing to do. So I, that kind of, in a way, helps me think, like, okay, I'm going to, you know... And by the way, like, that award is philanthropy. So that's an interesting tension there. It's, in a way, philanthropy that made me take the initial time in my own mind to say, let me explore this lark. So I spent a couple of weeks writing this speech, which is longer than I take on that kind of thing normally... And interestingly, as it was happening, Pope Francis came out with um, – I don't know if it was his big encyclical or some major statement on capitalism and markets and the environment and that kind of stuff. And I remember thinking – reading my speech and thinking like this is a bit fierce you know, to go after this room of 400 people who deeply believe in – Millionaires and billionaires changing the world as the way you change the world to go after them so straight on in the room feels a little aggressive. And then I remember reading the story about the Pope and thinking, like, all right, like this is giving me a little courage. You know, this is a Pope who's saying a bunch of things that are not convenient for a Pope to say. Um, the lesser mortals among us can, in our own little way, like have the courage and, and say these things. So I remember that giving me a little bit of bit of courage. I wrote this speech. I knew that it was going to be. I've never done this before. I've never never stood in a room. I've given many speeches in my life. I've never stood in a room and attacked the worldview of a room to its face head on. I decided to do it. Part of me, I think, thought and thinks that the only reason the society should kind of keep writers around is to do that. That's why it may be worth it to have us. And so I got up there. They didn't know what I was going to do. I made brief mention of the hate crime story that occasioned the talk, and then I went into this speech basically talking about what I described as the Aspen consensus, which is all the things we do talk about when we talk about changing the world in this space and all the things we don't. We talk about doing more good, but we never ask these people to do less harm. We talk about giving back, but we never talk about how much these people take and the structures of taking. We talk about changing the world, but we don't talk about all the ways in which they are shoring up a status quo that benefits them and predictably, reliably shuts other people out. And it was a very weird thing because it was an eerie silence during the speech. Right afterwards, I got a standing ovation, which I have to say shocked me. But it was a, it was a conflicted standing ovation,
2: well, you don't want to be the person not standing in that Correct. ovation. And I think there was, there was <laughs> it's like certainly It's a kind of that. virtue signaling happening Correct.
1: here. Afterwards, Madeleine Albright came up on stage because that's the kind of thing that happens at the Aspen Institute. And she says – "You know, I think she was very close to someone who felt offended by the talk. And she said, well, I don't know about our previous speaker, but I think America is a wonderful country. I thought, that's an unusual response to my critique of philanthropic social change. I never said America was a bad country. And it was an early hint that even someone like her who spent her life in public service, when you go after that kind of establishment, you're going after not just powerful people but a powerful worldview. And then, you know, a billionaire who was in the room came up to me and said, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm hateful according to you. That so was actually the next day. I never said, you're hateful. I mean, very weird reaction. But another billionaire who was in the room that day itself, a minute after I got off stage, came up to me and said, thank you for saying what has been the inner monologue of my whole life. So I want to go through some things you actually said in the speech
2: because I think it'll it'll make some of these reactions make more sense. Uh, the, the key line to me when I read it was, uh, and I'm quoting you here, to you, <laughs> uh, is – Sometimes I find myself wondering what we're actually doing here in Aspen. Are we here to change the system or be changed by it? Talk a little bit about how being in those circles, being part of these fellowships changes the people in them, even as the rationales that the people are there
1: to change the world around them. I think being in those spaces surrounded by other people like you who are reading Gandhi and Jack Welch and thinking about making change can fill you with a feeling that things are going to be okay for the society. Yes, people are angry. Yes, there's extreme inequality. But people are on the case. People care. People are good. People people want to solve these problems. And I think what happens in terms of people entering these arenas and being changed by them is in every, whether it's your high school or a nation, there's a kind of common unconscious culture of things you talk about and things you don't. And when rich and powerful people hang out with each other under the rubric of we're changing the world, they develop a common set of ideas about what changing the world is. And they unwittingly or sometimes wittingly wall off a bunch of ideas about what it's not. And what I started to notice, and this is perhaps my training as a journalist and writer, is all the things we weren't talking about. The things we weren't talking about became very blaring to me. So part of how you're changed by the system is just what you, the questions you learn to stop asking, um, the thoughts you learn to stop having, and... Things like, for example, there were some very top Silicon Valley people in this fellowship. And we were each encouraged in the fellowship, I should say, to do a project. And the project was to do some virtuous thing to help the world, And a lot of these Silicon Valley people, you know, they would do a program to, like, help 10 children with autism, or they would fund an initiative to help girls code, or, you know, totally laudable, virtuous things. I kept coming back to this fellowship every year, hearing about their projects, and also reading about how their companies were becoming monopolies, were posing serious challenges to our democracy. I kept hearing people in the media business telling me about their mafioso meetings at Facebook and Google, where they basically said, if you don't publish on our platform, like, hope you exist in a few years kind of thing. And I kept wondering, like, why are these people from these tech companies coming to Aspen, doing a project to help 10 children with autism, but not making their companies more honorable because their companies operate on a scale that is literally 10,000 times the impact of any kind of side hustle of virtue that they're engaged in. So something that that you focus
2: on here is this idea of the ideas that get ruled in and out of bounds. But there's something – another thread in your book and and to some degree in your speech that I think is in some ways more important, which is – just the social networks that emerge and how those warp what you do and don't do what you say and what you don't say. So uh, a simple example of it is that being in these rooms with these people over and over and over again it's very humanizing. In the same way that if you report among anyone or you spend time among anyone it's humanizing and you develop friendships and you end up with say a lot of friends on Wall Street or a lot of friends who do blockchain or a lot of friends who work at uh, Facebook and you don't want to make your friends upset, right? I mean, that's just a a human thing. And one of the things that I think is true within these elite cultures, and I, I think it is much bigger than the question of the Aspen Institute. It's, you know, why was it actually a problem that these Democrats, after they left office, were giving tons of speeches on Wall Street? Why was it actually a problem that you have some of these thought leadership conference networks that people spend all their time in, which is that in a world where... Some of diagnosing problems correctly and trying to understand solutions correctly means making people upset, means seeing people as doing bad things even if that's not how they see themselves. That's actually a lot easier with some distance. But on the other hand, that ease is intention with the the journalistic desire to report and, and also just with desire to hear what people are saying and, and, and understand them. And that to me feels like a, a big piece of this, that part of just what gets rolled in and out of bounds isn't ideas. It is who you
1: are willing to make feel uncomfortable. Correct. And you know, the fellowship I was in is a relatively narrow and homogeneous one in terms of mostly being business people. But if you think of that larger Aspen world, the Aspen Ideas Festival is a better example of what you're talking about, where you really do have a lot of journalists there. You have a lot of philanthropy, academic people, certainly a lot of plutocrats, you have military generals walking around, and it becomes a club where everyone kind of assumes, as you perfectly put it, good faith in people they're kind of hanging out with and grabbing a hot dog with on the lawn of the Aspen Institute campus, and civility is is great, (laughs) And, and actually having people from different sectors be able to see eye to eye. I and mean, as I said, like for me to actually spend extended time with operating business people understanding the cockpit view that they have and what the world's like and how some of my views about regulation, whatever, actually may be a little more complicated if you look at the world, that's very useful. However, when you are in a context, as I believe we are in this country, where you have a rigging problem and where elites have rigged the society to predictably, reliably, foreseeably shut a lot of people out of an opportunity to make a better life for themselves. Then that clubbiness becomes a big problem and that assumption of goodness in others, while it may be true at an interpersonal level, becomes a problem because what it does is it prevents precisely that hard-hitting reporting that might be done. It I think what happens often is that the do-gooding efforts by these plutocratic circles, it gives those of us who should be, whether it's in government or in journalism or elsewhere, who should be pushing back, who should be a counterforce, it kind of neutralizes us and numbs us and makes us feel like, well, these people are trying. So you, you have this other line in the speech where you say – These systems and structures of victims,
2: and we here are at risk of confusing generosity towards those victims with justice for those victims. For generosity is a win-win, but justice often is not. Let's draw that distinction a bit. Talk to me about some of the ideas that are win-win, that are are, are generous win-win ideas, and some of the ideas that are win-lose, that are are more zero-sum.
1: What I think a lot of the folks have done in these spaces is essentially – Proffer a light facsimile version of change for every major social change that may be required in our age, right? So let's take a few different issues and what's the win-win and the generosity approach, and what's the maybe win-losey justice approach. Let's take the empowerment of women. We know from many European countries' experience that if you want to get more women in the workforce and make it easier for women to participate fully, things like maternity leave and family leave and universal daycare or daycare tax credits. like there's plenty of evidence about what gets those numbers up. Now, that's expensive. That's going to cost the winners a lot. So that's maybe the justice solution. The generosity proffer is lean in, right? Let's have lean in circles. Let's have women come together and, and talk about raising their hands more. And that's only one example out of many. But there are these kinds of, or, or you have, you know, McKinsey writing a report that you know empowering women is a twenty eight trillion dollar opportunity. I knew someone at McKinsey who worked on that project, and who said, you know, she asked, well, why don't we actually advise our clients in the Fortune five hundred to stop lobbying against like maternity leave policy in Washington with their lobbying budgets? And people looked at her like, that's a ridiculous thing to ask our clients. Um, you take an issue like. Public education. A lot of the winners of our age are interested in public education, work on that issue, right? Um, I think justice on that issue would be ending something that I have never been able to understand, which is why is it legal or constitutional for any public school to be funded differently than any other, for, to fund it according to the value of your parents' house? It's just I would never be able to explain to a seven year old that situation. I think most people wouldn't. But solving that, would hurt the home values in Greenwich and Marin and would make public schools in the rich places less good, perhaps. So there has to be the generosity proffer, which is we're not ignoring the issue. We're not ignoring the idea that there's a problem here, but let's do a couple charter schools or let's have a startup that evaluates teacher effectiveness so we can move the best teachers to the most at-risk schools. I think there's an understanding on the part of many of the winners of our age that we live in a problematic age, and there's an understanding that you can't just not offer an alternative to the pitchforks and the demands for real change. So pseudo-change must be proffered as an alternative. This is a place where I thought there was a
2: distinction that I wasn't always sure where you were drawing it. There are a certain set of questions where you're just dealing with the distinction between a kind of bullshitty, you know, win-win solution, you know, let's have more mentorship in schools. Maybe useful, but but not gonna not gonna change the world. And something much more profound, right? A big change in taxation, or let's say busing, right? Bussing to ensure school integration. That is a solution. where That some is not a win-win. It's not a win-win. Um, or people might say in the long run for society, but, but not for everybody, and certainly people don't experience it that way. So, so there are things, I think, where we can look at it and say, we know what would work, but people are stopping well short of that. And then there are things where I think people of reasonable faith say, no, uh, we don't know what will work. There's a, a good faith disagreement about what will work. There are a lot of people who study education, and this is not my issue, and and I actually don't have the world's strongest views on it, but who say, no, we actually really do need to figure out how to measure teacher efficacy so we know what to fund, that there are plenty of school districts in the country that have perfectly high per-pupil spending and are also underperforming, and that for you to come and say that that's just generosity and offering a pseudo-solution – that what you're doing is virtue signaling, that you're not really offering a solution yourself. What you're saying is that a solution that just looks like peop- like you're taking something from the rich is a solution and you're flattening out the problems that people are actually trying to solve.
1: And I'm curious what your response is to people who say that. I mean, I don't think it's virtue signaling. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that there are places, there, there are certainly schools in this country and I've, I'm familiar with that data that that do have that $25,000 a year, you know, relatively high funding and and are troubled. I would submit that they're troubled probably because of surrounding justice issues in those communities um, that even $25,000 a year per pupil funding is not enough to remedy. I would love to know what's happening in terms of mass incarceration and wages Mm -hmm. and other things in that community that bear on that school and ask that school to solve what no school can solve. And I don't claim to say that, that you know taking from the rich is like the only solution we're talking about. What I'm trying to say and suggest is that there is a distinction between changes that come at the expense of power and changes that are perfectly compatible with the powerful staying powerful. And that when powerful people are given, leadership roles in social change-making, when they shape the conversation and idea set about what change-making is, when they form those social networks that that we talked about that become, in some ways, cartels of thinking and action around social change-making, the conversation is delimited and the actual policies are delimited in ways that, rule out a lot of forms of change-making that hurt powerful people and that tip the scale in favor of forms of change that help them. That doesn't mean that there are no win-wins. There's a lot of win-wins. It's just that when social change is required to abide by the rule of the win-win, a lot of changes that are important come to be ruled out.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com. There's
2: something that you talk about in your book that I think bears pretty heavily here. And I thought the most important point your book made is that this is an integrated system. It's an integrated system with pathways for advancement, with ideologies, with things it tells people. And one of the ways the system works is that it takes kids who are at usually elite colleges and who have a social conscience, and it has developed a very effective sell for them when they are feeling uncertain about what they're going to do with their degree in literature, their very expensive degree in literature. And it says, if you come to McKinsey or you come to Goldman Sachs, yes, we know that what you ultimately want to do is change the world, but you can't do it until you learn the way we do spreadsheeting. And so there's become this incredibly powerful mechanism for pulling kids into this pathway while still using the language of justice and social change and do-gooderism and I'd like to ta- have you talk a little bit about that because in terms of what are the things that you outlined that really harm society, to me, that's pretty high up there.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think there's an ideological component to that and a kind of the emotional and psychological cell that you described. And then there's also some structural things we can talk about about tuition debt and housing costs in the cities and the choices people make after they graduate about what kind of lives they can live. Um, but on the psychological front, you know, I think... What I find so interesting, I tried to understand – I have this, ch- you know, my first chapter is the story of this woman, Hillary Cohen, and it's a story of her senior year at Georgetown and how she decides to – what job she decides to do, right? And that's something everybody can relate to. We were all there once at some point making a decision about how you kind of enter the world as a, as a worker. And her initial impulse is I want to change the world. I want to change the lives of millions of people. And in that, she's a very common aspiration in her world. I I kind of describe the role that inequality and the discourses around inequality played in the atmosphere of her college years, 2010 to 2014. And so she comes out very clear that this is an age that requires people to step up and help others. Things are rotten in the state of Denmark. I want to work on those problems. But she is enchanted by the pitches of – Goldman Sachs, where she spends a summer, and then McKinsey, where she ends up actually taking a job, that, as you say, you have to learn what we know, the spreadsheeting and the PowerPointing and the ways of breaking down problems if you want to help people. In many ways, these institutions, I think, pitch themselves as the new liberal arts. I mean, the way the way the liberal arts were marketed as you got to learn this stuff if you just want to be a citizen. doesn't matter if you're going to be a doctor. doesn't matter if you're going to be a lawyer. You don't want to rush to those things. You got to first just learn you know, everything from math to literature to, to some of the sciences, history, et cetera. These firms, in a way, now make a similar pitch about the first few years of work. And it's very effective, one, because it creates an anxiety that I'll only be able to help people in the hundreds, not the millions, if I don't learn their skills, Right. That these people hold the keys; these institutions hold the keys of the kingdom of helping at scale, which is a big mantra now. The second thing is these organizations have become very good at mapping the psychology being that age. This is, I think, really important. You know, so if you're think back to when you were twenty-one or twenty-two, you're living with other people, perhaps in a dorm or a group house or a group apartment. People, different people are cooking every night. You're living in this this world that, frankly, many of us will never live you in say,
2: again. Trevor Burrus We're talking here about people who went to college, and yeah.
1: that is not everyone. Right, no, but, but I'm talking about, right, absolutely. But I'm talking about people, you know, where this recruiting yes, pitch Trevor Burrus
2: where this recruiting happens. happens.
1: And if you kind of go and work for, um, you know, in many, many jobs that you might do, could end up being a very lonely transition, Right? You're suddenly maybe living in an apartment by yourself, or you have one roommate, you're commuting to some job by yourself every day. And part of what these firms have figured out is they call every new group of hires, they call them a batch or a class. They recreate some of the college experience, the all-nighters, the sense of a team, the sense of working on a group project together, and they almost – blur the line between kind of graduating in senior year and starting at this big firm. So it feels like a lot of the same kind of rhythms. And comparatively, a lot of the kinds of things that someone like Hillary Cohen might have been drawn to, whether, you know, fighting for people in other ways, whether it's joining, you know, a housing activist group or working in politics on the Hill, um, A lot of those entry-level roles in all kinds of things, by the way, in our field, the media, are vague, uh, elusive don't advertise themselves very clearly when there are openings, don't provide a clear pathway, are just really complicated to figure out. Don't have – a lot of them don't
2: throw off enough profit to have massive classes that they hire eight months before the class is going to come in. Which is a big deal because one of the ways that the Wall Street and consulting firms get so good at this is they're able to give certainty way before most jobs are. You know, it's like when we hire at Vox, we hire like when we have a space to hire. (laughs) Goldman Sachs, who just hire a massive class every year predictably. And so
1: there is an escalator at these places, Mm -hmm. and it just moves. And all you got to do is get on it. You got to show up to the information session, interview, hopefully get on the escalator. And I think what these firms have been so brilliant at is understanding the anxieties of that age and channeling it into – spend a couple years here. And then, of course, what happens to a lot of people because inertia is real is that you stay there 20 years, right? You don't don't go – Help those people you thought you were going to Get help. Get used back to, to a standard years. of living. You 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 make commitments.
2: I, I want to talk about another one of the insecurities, though, because I think this insecurity maps on to your book pretty importantly, which is we have devalued the liberal arts and we have devalued the humanities. What used to be an understood way of working on your character and that that had a real value, and then you'd go out into the world and and, and be a person in the world and succeed in it on that basis. Now. People still study these things. They still study literature or philosophy or the social sciences or whatever it might be. But they do so with an anxiety that they're not preparing for any real job, that what they've been doing is somehow dilettantish or uh, indulgent. And this relates to this idea that, that you bring up of market world where then these groups come in and they say, yeah, but if you want to do things in the real world, you can't have just been reading Jane Austen. Or studying global literature, or thinking about logic puzzles, you have to know how to work spreadsheets. You have to know how operations work. You have to know how to do a PowerPoint. And it does strike me that we have slowly and then all at once bought into this belief that the skills that will change the world are the same as the ones that make a lot of money.
1: Correct. And I just want to say, I, I think this belief is so core to the the, the book. I mean, I, I have this chapter about how arsonists have, have, been, have rebranded themselves as the best firefighters. The people who invented the winner's take-all economy are the people best positioned to fight for equality. Um, and that all happens because of this underlying belief that business skills and a very specific kind of – these are not even operating business skills. These are the skills of financiers and consultants who are kind of these insider-outsiders to other people's business, that their skills are the skills you need to understand for everything. And it's such a weird belief Because, you know, one of the things that you and I both know as a journalist is you get to go into a lot of other people's worlds and you get to see a lot of other people's professions and ways of thinking. And I would say in my experience, every profession has like a really interesting, different way of breaking down problems. And I, for the life of me, can't figure out what it is about the business way of breaking down problems that's any better than any other. I mean, surgeons have a really interesting way of, we're basically talking about picking signal from noise you know, structuring a problem, they have their own way of doing it. I'm sure that's very valuable to a bunch of public problems out there. I think journalists who have a do a good job of listening to a lot of people and then kind of synthesizing what's the main truth here. That's seems to me a very important skill for all kinds of public problem solving. Uh, a public school teacher in a tough neighborhood who has figured out how do you actually win the authority to teach these kids and get into their hearts when they have every desire to not listen to you. That seems like a skill that's very applicable to all kinds of public problems. Uh, accountants who are pretty good at making sure that the money that goes out and money goes are the same amount of money, um, that seems like a very important skill for all kinds of things in life. I don't understand how this one skill of being able to make spreadsheets and PowerPoints and break down problems into issue trees managed to gain this thing that you have to spend three years doing this if you want to change the world. It, it had the money behind it. Correct. But uh, But I mean that in a very specific way that I did a lot of work a couple of years ago on
2: this question of what was this student to Wall Street management consultant pipeline really about? And one of the really interesting things that people told me when I did that was that the choice that a lot of students, and again, we're talking here about students at relatively elite schools, not only the Ivy League, but we're talking about four-year yes. colleges. We're talking about the upper tier of them. And that's a specific group, but it's also an important group to be looking at. One thing that was a very successful competitor here was Teach for America. Right, It was an incredibly successful competitor to Goldman Sachs, to McKinsey, to Bain, to all of them. And you might say, well, how is that possible? They pay very, very little. It's a totally different skill set. You're not going to get any of these business skills. But it had a lot of the same structure. It was – you had a lot of friends doing it. They would make the decision very early. It was a lot like grad school in that way. You knew people came out of it and did great things. It was prestigious, which is a big deal with all of this. People want to do a thing. Having gone to college, the next thing they do needs to validate what they have done. Hmm. And we've given McKinsey and Goldman, et cetera, a lot of social capital. But we've also given that to teach for America in a way – and I think this is a very fucked up thing about our society – in a way that we haven't done for just going to teach at a school, right? If you leave Princeton and you just go – as a public school teacher, I mean people are not upset at you.
1: But, but there's a bit of a – there's huh, going to be a bit of a what happened. Yeah, oh. well,
2: you didn't you didn't go and make a ton of money. Whereas like Teach for America, it certainly holds open the option that you'll go then run for office or make a lot of money. And that to me, it again goes to this bigger point that that threads through the book, which is you have to see these things as systems that change you right that end up subtly changing the way your ambitions go and what you think makes sense and the system here is there's a ton of money behind some of these jobs that creates a real pathway and if there's a ton of money creating real pathway behind a couple of these industries and not in the others, there's going to be a lot of pressure to create an ideology and to create a rationale that makes going, towards the money and towards the the big industry where there are the jobs that you can get early on so you can relax in your final quarter in college there's going to be a lot of pressure to make that into a decision that makes
1: sense yes and i think if you lurk around the darker parts of the internet and you you know
2: welcome to my job exactly
1: <laughs> and you and you you know hang out among those who have conspiracy theories about how the rich and powerful rule the world that but, one does not seem to me like a conspiracy theory. Well, the, the dumb
2: right. QAnon is a but, conspiracy theory. Right. The rich and powerful no, but, but rule the world. But,
1: but That's But when you get into how people think that works, sure. there's an imagination of conspiracy, people gathering in a room talking about this and scheming in these various ways. And I think what a lot of that misses is the rich and powerful do rule the world and they rule it often as I learned in this reporting – through things that are actually banal on the surface, like what we're talking about. I mean, what we're talking about in terms of how campus recruitment works is very far from the Reddit imagination of how people rule the world. But I think the thing we're talking about has such an extraordinary, long-lasting effect on all kinds of institutions. Because it's not just these kids going to these firms. It's then these kids 20 years later who get the job at some foundation— trying to figure out how do we make all public schools more equal or how do we think about the future of work or whatever, and the toolkit they have in their mind is the McKinsey-Goldman Sachs toolkit, not because they're bad people, because that's their training. That's who they are, and if the only one who can get that job is the person trained that way, as one of the characters I write about, Sean Hinton, who worked at McKinsey and Goldman and now works in a program trying to spread economic equality for Soros – he is quite aware of this issue and he calls it the, you know, trying to solve the problem with the tools that caused it issue. And, you know, he has this line where he says, if everybody in the car speaks English, the solution is going to be in English. And so the question is, not only is there this pipeline to these firms, but the pipeline out of these firms, again, creates a kind of delimiting of solutions very far down the road. So so this gets to something else that I think is important because when we talk
2: about which skill sets and institutions and solutions get importantly devalued here, I think we have to talk a bit about government and public service. I would say throughout the book and you're not always explicit about this, but I would say implicitly you're routinely comparing non-governmental and governmental approaches to problems. Yeah purchase of problems that are individually rich people or foundations giving money to do something versus a government passing a law to change something in society structurally. But one of the things that is certainly true in America, I won't speak for other countries, which often do have different dimensions around this, is public service and and I'll say government more specifically is considered ineffective. It's if you're not at the very top levels of it, it's reasonably low status. Um, just going into the public sector is not a, an impressive thing to do. The money in it, usually it's good or it's OK and it's certainly better than most people make but, but it's not great. But I think most importantly of all, it is considered ineffective. Government is considered to do these things poorly, to do them in a lumbering, non-agile way that, that, that often doesn't work. And what's worse is that there is often a lot of truth to that. I've known a lot of really good people who came into government and left with very, very deep disillusionment. And that's not only working under the Trump administration, that was also working at certain levels of the Obama administration, it's been working in in state governments. So one of the the tricky things here is that, on the one hand, I think that you have a, a real frustration with the people who wanna go do this from the outside. But on the other hand, one reason you often get these people wanting to do it from the outside is that there is a argument that has been absorbed. Some of it, I think, is unfair, but some of it isn't unfair. That government doesn't work that well, and so the idea that you can just go into government and and get the change you seek is itself a naive idea that just puts you next to a bunch of other
1: elites who end up disillusioning you as well. So a couple things on that. I hear that a lot from people, and I think it's an important source of anguish because I think it's. It's one of the reasons sincere people often end up pursuing this kind of private social change. So one thing is you can't have the conversation we are having right now without talking about why government is often dysfunctional in some of these spheres. And certainly part of the story, but not all the story, but but part of the story is plutocrats also have waged a war on government for 30 or 40 years that made it less capable and functional – in a lot of places. That's not the reason your DMV is a frustrating experience. But the reality is a lot of government is very underfunded relative to what other rich countries do, relative to what we used to do in the past. And you know, when you take 10, 20, 30, 40% out of the funding of something of what it could or used to be or should be and then complain it's ineffective, you're both the reason it's ineffective potentially and then you use the fact that it's ineffective as a pretext for you to work around it. I've often, in the course of reporting this book, spent time in rooms where you know, a bunch of social venture capitalists are these kind of people whose firms lobbied, for example, for carried interest to be taxed at a lower rate and therefore keep, in the case of that thing, $18 billion a year out of the government's coffers that would otherwise be in it, then using the fact that government doesn't work to say, well, social venture capital is the only way to go because government can't do anything anymore. Well, you're one of the reasons government can't do anything anymore. That's one. But I think there's still a remainder there where, yeah, government's ineffective. And what I would say is you don't go to a restaurant by yourself on Thanksgiving because your family is dysfunctional. It's still your family. And the government is us. You know, I have a character who says that towards the end of the book, Chiara Cordelli, the political philosopher at the University of Chicago. And She's sitting next to this philanthropist, Sandy Weil, who keeps talking about, you know, the government's awful, the government's this. By the way, Sandy Weil pushed for the government to do less and less and less. You, you called him a philanthropist, former head of Citigroup. Former head of Citigroup, now philanthropist. Now philanthropist. He was on a philanthropy panel, but yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> um, you know, he kept sitting on this panel saying, well, the government can't do this, government can't do that. And first of all, he pushed as hard as anybody for the government to do less than it did in regulating Citigroup and doing various other things, which helped cause the financial crisis which then caused the government to have to bail out all these companies like Citigroup, which made the government have even less money while it did that. And she just looked at him and she said, the government is us. And I think there's a way in which government has been othered by 30 or 40 years of neoliberal ideology. So it's been turned into some alien invading force. And yeah, it's hugely imperfect. I mean, we've all been to the DMV. And a lot of parts of the government are more like the DMV than not. But I I also think when government works, we don't think about it. I mean, I have lived in other countries. I've lived in countries where every meal in a restaurant is a dangerous experience, right? I'm not sure I remember the last time I got sick eating in a restaurant in America. Do you understand like what a civilizational accomplishment that is? Do you understand how hard that is to achieve? If you travel the world, you understand that's a precarious, fragile thing that is a goddamn miracle we've been able to pull off and there's a thousand little miracles like that when i put a car seat in my car it does not occur to me that it's not properly tested that it won't work if there's an accident like when i buy a car it does not occur to me that like it's not safe as safe as it could be in the case of an accident and are there exceptions yeah but in general we forget that yeah government's frustrating and annoying and inefficient but like, what it is doing in an unsung way every day that allows us to not be in the situation that, frankly, most countries in the world are still in is a fucking miracle. So the government is your dysfunctional family, but you don't go to a restaurant and eat alone on Thanksgiving. You go to your dysfunctional family and you try to make it better. So I'm going to say two things here. One
2: is that I agree with and cheer almost everything you just said. And now I'm going to take the other side of the argument. <laughs> this is like the I'm the, the, host, sig- so the to signature it. Ezra move in the podcast. I love so it. government is us is this thing liberals love to say. Um, <laughs> government is the, the the term we have for things we do together. But this is a book about elites and it's a book about elite networks And you were talking about how do people on Reddit think the the rich and powerful rule the world. And I think if you read them, what they think is that there's not this distinction between government and philanthropy and business. And not only that, I think to a very large extent they are right. There are revolving doors between all these different groups. There are very powerful elite networks that certainly operate at the the high levels of government um, that, that feed people in and feed them out. I don't know about the Aspen Fellowship specifically, but a lot of these fellowships are full of former government people. Yep. Um, Hillary Clinton is giving these super expensive speeches to Corporate donations
1: to politics. And,
2: and so th- this is, I think, a tricky thing here because yep. sure, surely there's a way government is us, but there's also a way that government is bureaucracy, which has – develops over time its own incentives. There's certainly a way in which government is uh, – a different way of putting it is deep state. There's certainly a way in which government is the people who fund campaigns mm-hmm. or just the people who work for them. There's a way in which government are the ideologues who are the most invested and engaged. And people are very alienated from their government. And and one of the things that I thought was interesting about the book was that it again had this sort of sharp delineation between public and private solutions that does not, to me, really hold up in real life. A lot of public solutions, certainly like let's just take this era in American life, are the Paul Ryan tax reform bill, right? That's what government is doing. And so, you know, there's a huge amount of folks on left who it's now hashtag resist. And then when Obama was in power, it's the other way around, of course. And that just creates a tricky thing because I, I think one of the intuitions of the book is that what people should do is engage in the public sector, but they don't feel differently about that sector than they feel about the one you're writing about. They feel it's all a bunch of elites who are all scratching each other's backs. And while you know, I think that that is often untrue in public service. I certainly can't say it is actually it is flatly untrue about public
1: service. I fully agree with everything you just said. I don't think there's that much of a of a contrast between that and what I'm arguing for because everything you described that makes the public sector not work is about private capture of that public sector, right? It's about lobbyists capturing it. It's about corporate donations capturing it. It's about elite networks capturing it. And when I say the government is us, I probably, to be more technically correct, say the government you know, ought to be us. The government is us as a philosophical point. That does not mean that it is impervious to private actors and elites capturing it. And I think right now, we are absolutely in a state where the government is not quite us because it has been captured. And this intuition that actually percolates both on the left and the right, the kind of far reaches left and the right of crony capitalism, I actually think is deeply correct. I think part of why Trump won and part of why Bernie had a shot is a feeling that the old distinction between either you're against a rapacious private sector or against a bloated government is actually a an old and outdated distinction because they're working in cahoots um, to solve that. What I argue for is we have to take back the public sphere. And that doesn't only mean government. It could also mean civil society or activist groups that put pressure on government or organizers or people who work in and around that sphere also. If it is true that a lot of our public sphere has been captured, creating a private initiative to solve that problem may help people but it contributes to the atrophy of the public sector that actually fights for the public and you know to your point going back to the earlier conversation about the pipeline of students one very simple idea that i think about is there's a bunch of private scholarships that you know at places like the kennedy school of government at harvard that offer people a full ride if they go and do 3 years of public service afterwards and you got to pay back in full if you don't, right? I think that kind of thing provides an interesting model for something we might do as a society where at some of these elite schools that you talked about, we actually raise the tuition. And if you go into the private sector, you pay the full thing. Good for you. Enjoy it. Enjoy your life. And it's a it's still going to be a very good cost-benefit analysis for you. But if you go into the public sector and we can figure out how to define that in the way that's good for us as a society uh, it could be teaching could be you know working on capitol hill could be any number of things we as a society will take on your debt cost we could think about you know helping young graduates 22 year olds who are trying to move to new york and san francisco and washington where housing costs are high giving them a break on housing. I think part of what happens, again, at this level of banality is when you're 22 and you got like 200 grand in student debt and you have seemingly only $3,000 apartments available to you in the rental market, you can get pulled into a life that doesn't really comport with your values and then doesn't really have an exit ramp for like 25 years by accident. And I think if we thought about actually how to have more people with the idealism to fix public problems with an inclination to do so in public ways. If we helped more of them stay on that course and made it, frankly, less expensive to cater to the public good, I think you'd see a lot more people entering the public sphere, which I think would... Help to push back against some of this private capture. I, I want to go back to
2: something you were saying about elite capture, and the idea that the government has been captured by elites or a certain kind of elite. It isn't clear to me that there is a period in American history when a critique like this could not have been leveled. Um, certainly, the government was not more representative of the public previously you know, in the 50s or in the 1800s, I mean, in addition to just flatly that a lot less of the country had voting rights, you know, we had primary structures where if you were not a party boss, what you thought about who the candidate should be simply didn't matter. We had senators who were elected by legislatures, not by... And so there's something I think about this period. There's this idea, uh, and I think it's in... um, I believe it's an idea from from Bartels and Aikens in their Democracy for Realists, but I could be wrong. They talk about this paradox of of democracy and one of their points is that whenever people are upset about how the elites are acting, whenever they're upset about what's happening in a democracy, the idea is more democracy. And I I read this in in your book, right? Like you look at the elites and you think there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with how they're acting, how they're talking, what they're seeing. This should be opened up and – that is very intuitively appealing and also I think one of the sort of arguments people would levy in, in, in replies, well, well, there are always going to be people who run parts of the government who, who, who are rich. And the question is why have the elites gone bad, not how do you not have them? There is this, I think, tricky tension that people really look back on as a golden age, periods in American life when things were a lot less small-D democratic – When elites held a lot more power, they look back with fondness on presidents like FDR who were much more out of a certain social circle and and had to do much less working with the common man than than politicians do today. And I think it raises a question about the generalized idea that the problem here is that you just somehow need to break the elite networks because I I don't see in this book and I don't see in general uh, ways to do that. I think there needs to be a theory of what – we are asking them to do. And so, like, this would be my question for you. For these people you're talking about, these leaders of business, these leaders of the public sector, these leaders in in philanthropy, what are you asking of them? What does it mean to be a good actor under
1: your framework? Well, first of all, I wrote the book for two different groups. And I think my more important audience is everybody else to say, do not trust the rich and powerful to be the vanguards of social change. Because in a lot of ways, I don't think they act in a vacuum. I think they act with a kind of passive cultural assent. Uh, you know, we give Mark Zuckerberg the authority he has as a world changer by sort of buying into the idea that he's a world changer. If no one bought that, he would just be another business guy. But in terms of how the people in market world, as I call it, can be a better actor... I think the simple answer is there are ways to change the world, quote unquote, to fight for change that protect the system atop which you stand, and there are ways to do that that threaten the system atop which you stand. There are self-preservational ways to change the world, and there are ways that actually interrogate your own complicity and your own privilege and put it at risk. And so if you go back to a lot of things we talked about in terms of charter schools versus more thoroughgoing reform of how we fund public schools, if you think about lean in and mentorship versus maternity leave and a child care tax credit, in each case, the latter is the kind of change that might benefit most people. It would be expensive for winners, and pushing for those kinds of things, or certainly refraining from getting in the way of those kinds of things with your corporate lobbying. So when I specifically am asked, as I often am by philanthropists and people in this world, well, like well, I feel accused. Like what? How do I give differently? There is this money now. I say, you know, look. I think in a more just America, you would have less money to give away and there would be fewer problems for you to give it to. But I understand uh, you talk about democracy for realists. Let's do philanthropy for realists. This money is there right now. You can buy a yacht or you can help. Some of you want to help. That's great. I think there are ways to give and I, I, I talk about this in two parts. I think there's ways to shift people's giving from giving back to giving up and from crowding government out to crowding it in. Right, I think there's a very much a place for giving, but I think if giving can move on those two dimensions. So Goldman Sachs doing a 10,000 women program, mentoring a few women, but continuing to be Goldman Sachs, continuing to speculate in the ways it does, continuing to pursue the kind of economy that is predictably, reliably not going to have opportunities for average people, um, that's giving back, right? Giving up would be, you know, maybe saying, look, we've done very well as a firm, we're going to pull back from lobbying against the kind of tax policy that would you know, benefit us at the expense of the society. We think we've done fine. We're willing to be a little less profitable. We're not going to spend millions of dollars a year lobbying to essentially overrule the public interest on tax policy. And By the way, that's not even philanthropy, just stopping doing something they're already well, doing. So I want
2: to say two things on this because I think this is an important juncture in your argument. One is that your whole point about systems, I think you almost need to take more seriously here. I've talked to a lot of these Goldman Sachs guys. Usually, they think that the things they're working for, even if they benefit Goldman Sachs, they make the world better. Markets are more efficient. It's all win-win. And and so one thing I think that is an insight of the book and, and something I believe strongly is people very rarely believe things that it is inconvenient for them to believe. Cynicism is overrated and motivated reasoning is underrated. But the other piece of this is I was reading the book and and the book doesn't do that much in terms of solutions or it's not trying to sketch out a a view of an alternative society. But but I'm listening to you here too. I feel like your book has a very radical worldview that you are still stopping short of. I'm hearing – paid family leave. And yeah, paid family leave. But you know, you mentioned lean in earlier and like you put those two things on different sides of the coin. I don't know for sure. I've not looked. But I'm, my guess is Sheryl Sandberg supports paid family leave. And I'm sure Facebook has great policies on that. It seems to me that what you're talking about, you got to think about stuff that is pretty far outside of where we are. I've been reading a lot of Paul Farmer recently and his stuff about preferential options for the poor. The idea that uh, – he works in healthcare, but but his idea is that you have to you have to realize that diseases prefer the poor because of social conditions and infrastructure conditions and whatever. And so the poor actually need to get better healthcare than the rich, not, not just okay healthcare or healthcare better. Like significantly, they need a better option than the rich get and need to be listened to along the way. And I think there's a question here of if you are trying to get out of the blinders these systems put on you – well, then the kinds of solutions we've heard a lot about, like paid family leave, that's going to be small ball because the stuff that is emerged inside the system as something people just normally talk about, raising marginal tax rates a bit, getting rid of the carried interest loophole, which is something we talk about all the time, not because it has much money behind it, but just because it's egregious. Like this is marginal stuff. Yep. Um, I, I think the question is if you are trying to free yourself from these blinders, like where do you start? Like how do you slough off? the structures of a system that the things it is told you are a little bit out of reach are still probably not going nearly far enough? It's a great question.
1: You know, I, I think one thing that I find very helpful is just the comparison with other places. There's a lot of other places in the world that do each of these little bits of things differently. And particularly in America we have what someone once told me was big country syndrome, which is you know we just we it sometimes doesn't occur to us that there's 200 other healthcare systems around the world, and you know three or four of which may have solved a similar problem better than we have. I'd um, say 15 or 25 of which. But sure. <laughs> so one is, I would say, like on each of those issues, there's probably someone who's done it much better, even if our patriotism wants to make us not believe that. But I think you're right. I mean, I think what you're getting at is I'm trying to suggest specific policies that precisely because they are already on the table to show them as alternatives to the kind of emptier forms of change that are promulgated. But you're right that I think what I'm really arguing for in this book is a change in who has power. And part of what, bothers me about the rich and powerful kind of owning and co-opting social change is that it defines social change precisely in a way where power does not change hands, where essentially people's lives are bettered as much as possible within the existing power distribution. And I think to change the existing power distribution would require going much deeper, as you suggest, than things like family leave to thinking about what does money buy you in the society? What are all the ways in which it buys people more power than their one vote entitles them to? And how do we reduce that at every level at every place, whether that's the school you go to, whether that's money in politics, whether that's lobbying? But what are all the ways in which the public interest... I mean, there are many things in which 51% or 60% or 70% of the American people want something that we will never be able to enact. And I think we've gotten so used to the idea that there's a bunch of things most of us would want that just can't happen. The more radical idea is to say, what would we need to do in our power structures all the way up and down this society so that that ceases to be normal and so that when there are things that would benefit the vast majority of us, they happen. And that's not something that can simply be passed in a law. I think, you know, we haven't talked a lot about Trump in this conversation and I'm relieved for that. But I don't think you get a Donald Trump without there being like 18 uncorrelated system failures that all happened to happen at once. I think a lot of things went wrong and, and all of them had to have gone wrong for something this out of the American institutional experience to have happened. And part of what I fear About Trump is that a lot of attention, he magnetizes attention and perhaps makes people think that he's the fullness of the problem. But part of what I hope about Trump is that actually people will, after he is gone and perhaps out of our lives forever, we will have a space to have a deeper conversation about those 18 uncorrelated system failures and all the ways in which power doesn't work in our society that allowed there to be enough hurt, enough anger enough resentment, in addition to all the racial things and and other things that you've explored so well in this show, that allowed us to get to a place where the dominant mood of the country was shattering things instead of building things.
2: So uh, I want to now offer what's also a sort of radical critique of the book, but from the status quo direction. So let me try to voice this, because I think this is a view people will have, but is not one we've explored. So there is nothing more popular on a certain level right now in American life than being extremely pessimistic about the state of American society. There is within the media a uh, strong negativity bias. There is this crazy thing happening in politics, which we reason a little bit backwards from. As you say, a lot of things had to go wrong simultaneously for Donald Trump. But even so, there's Donald Trump. So we we need to explain what the hell happened. There is the general reality – that if you are a pundit or a columnist or some kind of public thinker and you come out and you say, you know, things are pretty good, you sound like a asshole. Whereas if you come out and say, things are terrible, my class is part of the problem, you sound like a brave truth teller, right? That's I think one of the um, biases one could argue is in the book and – You write at one point, say, about Steven Pinker's book, Better Angels of Our Nature, and people have different views on Pinker. He's been on this show before. I'm a a fan of a lot of his work. And you say one of the reasons people in Silicon Valley like that book is that it's a justification for keeping the social order largely as it is, that that book, which shows massive falls and huge numbers of different kinds of violence over a long period of time, what he's saying in that book and then in his follow-up book, Enlightenment Now, is actually – this isn't so bad that in the sweep of global history, human history, something we are doing is working. It's not working well enough to create a perfect society. We still have a lot of ground we need to to gain. But if we – become so used to talking about it as if it isn't working, if we become so focused on what is still wrong that we can't see all the ground we've covered, that we can't value that we live in arguably the best time there's ever been to be alive as a human, that we're going to lose out stuff too, that we're going to have populist backlashes like Donald Trump, that we're going to have backlashes against – you know, an elite that maybe is working better than previous elites have in human history, that, that is built on a better foundation. You know, this idea about billionaires in business not being the way to social uplift. Well, what about China and India where, you know, opening up to capitalism has really done quite a bit? And so I'm curious to your answer to that direction of the critique. Not the idea that things are still often bad, but actually that this idea that there's something going terribly wrong and that this elite is failing in a way previous elites haven't. That you're throwing out too much. And in fact, the radical view and the view that in an age of Donald Trump and rising populism, that more people need to be willing to take, is that, you know what, there is some value in the system we've built, and we shouldn't be so quick to
1: ignore it because we've sure as hell done worse in the past. I think there's a lot of truth in what you said. You know, I think part of why I write about Pinker in the book is I'm I'm interested in the way Pinker has been used by hedge fund guys and Silicon Valley guys more than Pinker himself as the thinker because the argument that he makes is undoubtedly truthful. I think what happens is I have this verb in the book, pinkering, and, you know, I think to pinker is to use the true fact that broadly things have gotten better and this may be one of the best times to be alive in history. You know, I think we can talk about some of the potential detractions from that argument but to use that to shame those who do have legitimate grievances about the present part of the work of any era is to try to make things better and yeah like most people couldn't eat a thousand years ago and but if you use that to kind of go to Appalachia now and say you know yeah you're complaining about eating but most people couldn't eat a thousand years ago that's not a useful Yeah, it's true that more people couldn't eat 1,000 years ago
2: than now. No, but let let me try to strongman this argument because I want to – because it's not actually my view, I want to make sure I don't underrepresent it in this conversation. Absolutely. Everybody agrees that when you're talking about what has gotten better, that doesn't absolve you of what what isn't better. I'll give you an example. Um, Scott Winship, who's a sort of I'd say center-right economic thinker. He, I uh, saw him tweeting in response to some stuff we were writing about Elizabeth Warren and, and, and sort of her plan, uh, as my colleague Matt Iglesias put, it, to save capitalism. And he's like, the crazy thing here is this idea that capitalism needs to be saved, right? That something is so wrong that it needs to be saved. You know, we have uh, – now I'm going beyond what he said, but we have 3.9 percent unemployment and more people in Gallup say it's a good time to get a job than ever since Gallup has been asking the question and – You know, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot going on in the economy that's reasonably good. And at the same time, we're having this conversation as if the whole thing is wrecked. And I think that the stronger version of the argument this side of things makes is that what people like you and in many cases people like me are doing is not focusing on the problems. It's that in order to display concern about the problems, we are attacking the broader systems in ways that they may not recover from, that one way Donald Trump gets into office is that everybody believes the US government is completely corrupt, right? And that everybody's a scratching elite and that it, it's part of focusing on the problems of what's going on to, to focus on the ways in which the elite <laughs> uh, takes care of itself. On the other hand, to miss all the good that the US government can do can create a real issue. And so that's the question like it's not should we focus on the problems but do we lose perspective when we use the problems at a time of broad global progress to indict the systems that while they've not solved everything have for the most part kept things getting better in our lifetimes.
1: I mean I you know I've spent nearly 5 years reporting as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times in India. So let's talk about these broad currents of things getting better. I mean, I lived through the decade in India that was this great explosion of prosperity in India. I did some small amount of reporting in China. I will tell you that, you know, in the pinkering narrative, um, capitalism came to India and China and therefore how can you critique capitalism? Well, you know it's very complicated. India did open its markets. India also did the most massive affirmative action program on caste that any society has ever done ever, where 49% of government jobs and university seats were reserved for lower caste people. I mean, it's an affirmative action program that makes ours look like a joke. And they did that roughly in the same period that they let markets in. So is the story of 1990 onward in India, a story of the triumph of markets or the triumph of one of the largest government programs ever to remedy four thousand years of caste discrimination. It's hard to say. Probably they both worked yeah, together. Probably both, right? Correct. Which is very similar to our story of how the mixed economy worked: mm-hmm. great regulation and great companies. China often used, by the way, most of this poverty reduction in the world is one country, right? And is that a story of capitalism? I mean. Maybe, but it's also a story of one of the most authoritarian governments in the world that requires every foreign company that comes in there to have a local company as their partner that puts enormous foreign investment caps on various industries that that has state-owned enterprises as the biggest companies. I mean, it's communist country, but but isn't China a super interesting critique
2: to this thesis? right? Because that is the triumph of the unaccountable technocratic elite. In a way, I am super uncomfortable with, but you can't take away I that, think China, that is the single largest absolutely. when I was, rise when I was out living in India, ever. reporting
1: on India. I will tell you nothing, and forget being here. When you're in India and you're looking at a country that is doing it essentially on the American model, I mean, India is a very different society, but it's uh, India is essentially doing it on the American model. You know, about the similar mix of kind of markets versus you know a kind of government, generally a belief in the same kind of liberal institutions. And then you look at what the Chinese have done to actually eradicate diseases and send people to good elementary schools and fight for women's equality. And it's very, very difficult as a believer in liberal values as I am and democratic values to look at the way in which the Chinese have almost inarguably done better by regular people than India has, which is a whole other conversation. But what I wanted to bring up just in those two examples is – what often happens in this pinkering narrative is that this era of, you know, it being the best era to be alive is simplified into an era of capitalism. Like I could tell the story totally differently where in both India and China, government and markets work together in a way that in our American system today, they don't anymore. And I think you tell a similar story about Brazil, by the way, and Lula having credibility as a labor person who came in and said a certain amount of market is okay. Like, I think part of the story of this era is actually the story of, in many parts of the world, there being a bargain between the private sector and an aggressive, assertive public sector that remedied justice issues, while what markets do best was also allowed to flourish. And so, The fact that that has triumphed, I'm not sure that it validates the idea that leaving capitalists alone is the answer. It may validate the thesis given where we are in America today for government to do more. So part of my problem with the pinkering is the reception of it as proving a particular thesis about capitalism that seems not justified by the actual facts of those cases. Now to your larger point about this being a a good time to be alive? I think it is. I think there's a couple problems with the thesis. I mean, in no other era of history has the habitability of the planet been called into question by our conduct. So, yeah, the best era to be alive, but by some estimates, maybe not habitable in 100 years. I mean... Yeah, so right now, you want to get in while the getting's good. This is definitely this this is the best, best era to be alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, like, that always seems to me a very big missing piece, of this best time to be alive narrative? At no other time to be alive have we been so close to possibly eliminating the possibility of human existence on this planet. I'm not.
2: I'm a pretty big climate change alarmist. But I want to say that one reason I don't buy that
1: is that I don't think we're on that kind of apocalyptic doom loop. I'm not saying that we are on the doom loop. All I'm saying is these things are much more complicated. The fact that this is the best time to be alive according to these people also coincides with the closest we've ever gotten in history to rendering the planet uninhabitable what i'm saying is progress and problems often grow together that doesn't mean mm. that we haven't made progress but the anxieties we've created in the modern world also go along with the technology and prosperity and productivity we've created you know i just tend to have a view that good and bad things go together and when yeah you it's not to say there's no progress but There's absolutely progress and people's lives get better. But to use progress to say the problems at any given moment are whining, which is I think – I don't think that – well, I I don't think
2: that's what people are saying. But let let me frame it this way because I do think this is the question that it raises for me. I think the hard question here is what is the process by which you come to your answers? Right For any of us, um, I think something that, that is your critique through the book is that there's this business elite and the process by which they're coming to the answers is we're great and the stuff we've already done is how we should solve every problem. And that seems to me clearly wrong. There are other questions, right? I think that the the challenge raised by – and I feel a bit bad to put this all in pinker at this point because we're probably beyond where his theses are. But the challenge raised by the idea that maybe we have a negativity bias and as much as there are very real problems, there's also a lot of progress that needs to be protected. It is a civilizational accomplishment that you can go into any restaurant in America and basically be certain you're not going to get sick or be pretty sure you're not going to get sick is, well, maybe that should create a kind of Burkean – people argue about whether or not this is truly Burkean, but let's call it a Burkean humility, right? We should be careful sitting here, two journalists being like, let's upend – society because we've been in a bunch of rooms where it seems like it's full assholes and also there's a bunch wrong in society. Um, one argument is that, oh, be really careful here because actually this can get a lot worse, right? You can give up all this progress you've made. And I, I think that's where the question comes in. I, I think this is one of the things I was left with in the book. I think you really do a great job basically devastating the idea that the problem-solving structure— of these elite thought leadership, as my friend Dave White calls it, thinkfluencer networks, I think you do a really good job basically devastating the idea that they have come up with some way of solving the world's problems that is particularly profound. In fact, they've often come up with a way of absolving themselves for the world's problems or making themselves look good amidst the world's problems. What I didn't see as much was what is the process we do come up with. We've talked a little bit about the ways in which government is not great um, or often is not great. And so there is this kind of plan beats no plan problem. So you know, I'm bringing up the question of yes. you know maybe you shouldn't do too much because you want to be humble, right? That's one argument people make. Where do you come down? Not on whether or not we should leave everything the same. Let's agree that we shouldn't. But where does this leave us in terms of trying to – work our way through the question of society is super complex, there's a lot of progress to protect, a lot of injustice to try to solve.
1: What do we do? It's a great question. And I think your Burkean idea actually helps me verbalize something that that I maybe haven't, which is you know, I strongly resisted solutions in this book. Um, the plan which as a fellow writer, I respect
2: exactly. and congratulate
1: you on. Thank you. Um, <laughs> The plan was to have a solutions chapter um, at the end. The worst. I told my editor I'd submit the book and then I'd send that in later and then just never sent it in. And chose, in fact, to end with this political philosopher, Chiara Cordelli. And something in me just, you know, resists doing that. And a lot of people say, you know, the idea of devastating a particular class of problem solvers or a particular mode of problem solving is incomplete work. I mean, you owe us, you know, I mean, I, I cannot tell you the number of book events I've been to in the past where my books were not even, uh, even less relevant to the following question. But People will stand up and say, okay, but what can the CEO do on Monday morning, right? And my previous book was about a hate crime. But people just feel like the CEO needs to have something he can do on Monday morning. Otherwise, what was all this for? And your Berkian thing actually gives me a different way to think about my own reticence which is one of the things that I love, this book's only gotten to a few hundred people so far because, you know, it's it's only out now, but already in the people that it's gotten to who are from all walks of life, who are activists, who are in philanthropy, who are business people, who are writers, people's ability to read it and then come up with solutions that grow organically out of their worlds and their experience where it meets the book seems to me much better than me sitting here and, like, coming up with my 20 solutions. Like, when we talk about family leave or, you know, public school funding, like, I'm riffing here with you, but I don't—that's not what I do. And part of why I think our society actually needs to learn to sit with criticism more and and to embrace devastation as a constructive act is people who are not like me, who are not writers, but who are operating people in various walks of life, I think are very good at— being in their world, reading an intervention like this, and in their minds, the intersection of their experience and a critique can form something. And so my hope in that Burkean sense is that I'm not the person unraveling the woven figure and that my devastating critique can ramify into a lot of different worlds. And those parts of my critique that are maybe overdone or don't quite work in a particular world will be filtered out and those parts of it that strike someone working on public education or working on uh, empowering women or working on hunger, the parts that are useful will empower them to fig- and give them language to figure out in their world what is the right solution that is authentic and organic and sufficiently respectful of what is already working. The most gratifying thing that's happened for me with this book with the few hundred people who saw it early is people saying, you know, this verbalizes and puts into words what a lot of us in this field quietly feel but can't say because we're getting grants from these big foundations. You know, someone said to me, when you get a grant from one of the big four or five foundations— there's an expectation that you kind of stop tweeting about inequality and you just use the word opportunity instead. And part of what I hope a book like this can do in offering critique without as many solutions as some might want is to give those people who are, I think, much better positioned than me to solve problems and come up with solutions, permission to turn their inner monologues into outer monologues and to undam a whole bunch of conversations that are not initiated by some writer in a booth with you.
2: Well, I think that's a good place to let us sit with the discomfort and the devastation. So last question here, uh, while we are sitting with it, while we are are, are feeling the weight of um, of our failures, what are three books you've read that you'd recommend to, to the audience?
1: A forthcoming book that I think is going to be an extraordinary contribution to the genre of memoir is Casey Gerald's book, There Will Be No Miracles Here. It's coming out in October. And it is a memoir of growing up as close to the bottom of the American social ladder as you can and then rising to the very heights of it through many of this is a guy who ended up seeing and being part of many of the most powerful elite institutions of our time from Yale to Harvard Business School to Lehman Brothers before, you know, and onward. And It's just an extraordinary portrait of what it means to live on both the bottom and the top of American life. The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson is um, also actually a memoir, although she calls it a work of auto-theory. She's a kind of gender theorist, and it's the closest a regular person like me can understand some of those ideas. So it's a memoir of a year in their lives in which Maggie Nelson is— Pregnant and her partner is exploring gender fluidity and transition and it is one of the most extraordinary and searing works that makes you actually rethink your own assumptions about gender and, and identity and sexuality and it's just the most searingly beautifully written thing I've read in a long time. And then there's a new book by Francis Fukuyama on identity which I think has a very important idea for this country and particularly for for Democrats, thinking about their angle of attack on Trumpism. And he's not one of these kind of um, annoying older uncle critics of identity politics who basically feels like, what are the kids talking about these days? He comes at it from a place of love. I think he thinks identity politics has done a lot of good. I think he thinks it's given marginalized people a language to, to claim power. I think he thinks it's helped privileged people understand their effect on others more effectively. But I think he argues that it has hugely for the left come at the expense of an agenda of cross-cutting solidarity. And it's at the margin pushed the left towards being a, a confederation of um, mini groups instead of being able to speak to 70% of Americans about, frankly, what you know, being on the wrong side of power and he proposes a vision in which national identity becomes an important thing to talk about but a pluralist inclusive idea of national identity to counter the trumpist one as opposed to an empty cosmopolitan one that actually just makes trumpism worse
2: onanderdartas thank you very much thank you Thank you to Anand Giridharadas for being here. I'm glad we solved all that. It's all done. We have all the answers. Uh, Thank you to my producer, Julian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. I hope you all are out changing the world and creating real justice. And we'll be back next week.